We are back into the book of Mark, so can you please open up Mark chapter 8. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, If you're visiting, welcome again to Hope Church. I want to reiterate that. And, of course, to everybody who calls us home, I'm hoping to see you on Wednesday night (coughs) as we gather to pray. There's so much work to be done, and as we just sung, if, if the Lord is not in it, if he's not building, if he's not raising the house, then it will crumble. It will be only a human work. And so come and jump into the trenches with us as we pray and we march to the throne room of God to pray his blessings down on all that we do as a church. So I hope to see you Wednesday. We're back in the book of Mark after taking that short uh, trip through Acts. And we're, we're at this uh, place in the book of Mark that is, that is right at the center. Let me just go back a few verses from what we're going to be in today. We'll be reading from verse 34, but just going back to verse 31 in this chapter, we saw that Peter confessed Jesus as Christ, and then Jesus told him that, that yes, you're correct. In Mark's gospel, we see Jesus say, uh, in fact, you're so correct that, that, that what you just said is actually not even humanly derived. You didn't learn that. You received that from God. That was revelation, what you just said there, Peter. Well done. Turns out you're somewhat of a prophet. You just open your mouth, and God's words come out. You are correct. I am Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he says, and, and because I am that, verse 31, the Son of Man must go suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. But Peter, still on a high from his last correct answer, he only gets one of those every couple of months. He was pretty excited about it. And so, so just pulls silly old Jesus aside and starts rebuking him sharply. No, 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 didn't you hear what I said? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You don't get killed. You don't suffer. I'm I'm actually happy to be able to present you the gospel here, the evangelion, the good news, that you don't have to die, Jesus. There's no cross for you as the Messiah. And Jesus pulled the other disciples back into a crowd, put Peter in the middle, and began to sharply rebuke him. Say, what you have said is satanic. I've heard this before. I remember being in a desert not too far from here, starving, Alone, not long after my baptism, and a voice came with the very same temptation. Just bow down. Receive the comforts of kingdom. Receive the comforts of glory. Without dying, Jesus, just bow down and worship me, the devil said. And what the devil can't, can't convince Jesus of personally, he, he sends a good friend. He comes cloaked through friendship and love and kindness and, and even maybe quoting some scripture, and he tries to tempt Jesus that way. Don't go to the cross. You're the son of the living God. But Jesus rebukes him, say, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking of the things of God. You didn't blurt out that because God revealed that to you this time. You didn't say that after dwelling on Scripture. You've said that because your mind is so turned to the glory and the gain of this life that you can't comprehend the glory of the kingdom of Jesus. I'm sure you've told your kid, when you buy them one of those $2.50 green lasers from Toys R Us, just to to quell them, give them something to do on the way home, you have to tell them, like I do, don't point it into the eyeballs of your little brother. I know it's fun. It glows up. It's cool. Don't do it. It'll make them blind. You've, You've had to tell your kid... Don't stare at the, at the bright light. They, they just love doing it. They find the brightest light they possibly can and just stand under it like, like a kid getting zapped up by an alien. Or you've had to tell them, don't look directly at the sun. It'll make you blind. 
Don't sit so close to the TV. They climb as close as they can get and watch it like this. It'll make them blind. Or we tell them that. It'll give you square eyes is what my mum used to say. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying to us, the, the story from what we've, we've looked at all, a term ago now, let's recap. Jesus is saying there's a way to look so intently the glories of this world that it makes you blind spiritually. So the more you look at the riches, at the popularity, at the gain, at the, at the wealth, at the, the, the influence, the pleasures, the sexual temptation, the more your eyes are focused on this, the, the more that there is, a, there, there is a large black spot, there is, a, there is a blurriness, there is an inability to see what Jesus puts on offer. If we stare at this world too long, then we have it burned into our retinas and we cannot see Jesus' path to the cross. Jesus said there in verse 33, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you misunderstand the, the work of Jesus, you misunderstand everything in the Christian life. You, un, you misunderstand the king, you misunderstand his kingdom, you misunderstand what it is to be a disciple in this kingdom, you misunderstand what it is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, of the gospel, of the crucified Christ. You miss it all. And so Jesus refocuses them. And in fact, this part in Mark's gospel is, is a real turn of events. Where basically Mark's gospel is broken down into three, each side of the room, three groups, uh, sorry, three parts, three, three sections. We've just finished the first section. It's Mark 1 through 8, which was the, the dramatization of the arrival of the king. As the, the kingdoms of the earth shake and shudder as this Jesus is going about. And we saw Herod getting afraid and killing John the Baptist. And we saw uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, them, them reckoning with what it is to have this king, the son of David, in their midst. We saw the coming of the king in the first eight chapters. And he's doing miracles and he's preaching. He's doing amazing things. Now we come to this shorter three-chapter section from here where we're in at the end of chapter 8 through to the end of chapter 10. And this section is refocusing the disciples' minds onto the cross. And then after this, from verse 11, chapter 11 onwards, is crucifixion week. It's the cross. It's Jesus going to Jerusalem, battling the Pharisees, arguing with them, proving that he has to die, prophesying his death. So, so that's coming. That's, that's section three. But in these next few chapters, it'll take us up to about Christmas. We have this middle section of chapter eight through chapter 10. And, and what happens is you'll notice this cycle. If you haven't read Mark commentaries before, that this is a bit, of a bit of a primer. As you go and read these few chapters, what you'll realize is that Mark shows us, <coughs> first of all, Jesus prophesies his death and resurrection, and then the disciples massively misunderstand it, and then Jesus turns that into a discipleship lesson. And then he goes back and he teaches them on his life, death, and resurrection. They completely misunderstand it. Jesus turns it into a discipleship lesson. Happens a third time. He finally prophesies his death and resurrection. They misunderstand it, and he uses it for a discipleship lesson. And then, whether they're ready or not, it's into crucifixion week, and they have to understand what will happen there. So we're starting out this lesson that we will now read from verse 34, that Jesus has just prophesied his life and his death and his resurrection that will come. Peter completely misunderstands it. We're following the Messiah. There's no crucifixion in these parts, and Jesus turns it into a discipleship lesson. Read with me in your own Bibles. You follow along as I read in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. May God bless the reading of, of the words of his own precious Son through the words inspired by his Spirit today. It is we have to be quite, quite gentle with Peter at this point. It's very understandable the error that he's just made. That they're wondering as they've been chosen as the sort of, sort of 2.0 of the 12 tribes of Israel. We sort of went through this when Jesus picked 12 apostles. That they would have noticed that number 12 is somewhat significant. They realize what we're sort of the, 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 the evolution, if I can use that word in church, the, the evolution of what uh, Israel was meant to be. They were going to be the followers of Jesus, the Messiah. They understood him now, as Peter said, to be the Christ, the anointed one, the shepherd of Israel, the savior of his people, the, the, the Messiah. And they have to be wondering, they have to be thinking, what's it, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like to be in the kingdom? Like, that's, that's our generation. We're the most blessed generation of all of Israel. We're going to see the Messiah set up his kingdom. What's it going to be like? I wonder what it's going to be to be, to be the, the closest 12 in the throne room. I wonder what it's going to be like when he's, when he's actually doing the winning. Like, what's the battle going to look like? I, I'm looking forward to it. They, they were thinking about it. They were anticipating and wondering, what is life going to be like in this new kingdom that Jesus sets up? You have to remember that, that what the Jews in the first century understood to be the messianic kingdom was something very political, and can't blame them for that. The Old Testament people of God was a political, geopolitical nation, we understand, that their expectation was, as the prophecies made it look, that they were going to have in Israel, as the Messiah comes, the destruction of whoever is over them. That's Rome. And it's not just that. It's not like they get their land back. They were going to have a king who ruled over all of the earth, that all of the kings and every army comes to Jerusalem to receive the blessings of God. They were going to be at the center of the world again. They were waiting. They were anticipating. They, they could imagine the Messiah Jesus in his glorious robes, clothed in a crown and with a scepter. After passing through that battle, through that victory, and then turning to the crowds and saying, would anyone come after me? Here I am on the precipice of the kingdom, about to enter into the palace. Would anyone come after me? Let him take up his sword and fight. Let him, let him come after me in, in all of the glory, for whoever does not fight for his life today will lose it. Whoever does not take stand for himself, his family, his nation, his possessions will lose them. But those who have strength, those who desire glory come after me. Whoever surrenders his life will lose it. You can imagine of the most glorious of all of the, the, the Shakespearean, Scottish, English general speeches on the front lines about to engage in battle. Of all of those, Jesus would have been the most glorious riding on some huge horse, brandishing a, a flag and a sword in the other hand, yelling out, who would come after me? Take up his sword and on to glory. And what they hear 
is this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. The kingdom that Jesus is setting up flies in exactly the opposite direction, the opposite direction that these men are thinking. It goes right into the blind spot that they had worked for themselves and we work for ourselves because of our focus on earthly things. We're going to break this down. Jesus says, number one, deny himself. Then take up your cross. And thirdly, follow Jesus. When Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, if anyone will enter the places that I'm going to be going, the, the glory of the Father, into the kingdom, into the throne room, if you want to come after me there, Deny yourself. By deny yourself, he means that we have to turn away from ourselves in all the things that we're coming to Jesus for. Okay? It doesn't mean deny yourself in that, in the, uh, don't, don't worry about clothing yourself, feeding yourself, don't, 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 don't lead your own life, don't, don't make those everyday decisions. We, we can over-apply this and just turn ourselves into to hippies who live in the, live in the jungle because we, we ought to deny every creature comfort possible. No, we're told to enjoy the world God has made, and, and so we do. Great food here at Hope Church, right? Great food. We, we enjoy that. Well, what does Jesus mean by deny yourself? What he means is that, that everything that you come to Jesus for, you have to deny, turn away from yourself for those things. You're coming to Jesus for salvation, Right, that's the call. Come to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And if we're coming to Jesus for salvation, we must deny ourselves for any grounds of that salvation. Any holiness you think you have, any righteousness you think that you can look at the law of God and sort of start ticking some things off, any goodness that you think God would, would look at you and, and give you a passing grade, any of that. You must completely deny that in yourself you have any good thing that can bring you through the acceptance and the justification of God's law. Deny that. Or we come also to Jesus for lordship. We come to him as the king. And therefore we must deny ourselves, turn away from ourselves for any sense of ultimate authority, lordship, leadership, autonomy, and sovereignty in our own lives. If we're coming to Jesus for lordship, then it has to be an entire deal. We are not just uh, giving Jesus the, the, the right-hand uh, advisor's seat. He's not going to step into our kingdom and sort of, you know, be given a, a, an advisor's role where he, he gets to put in his, his two cents worth when we lift our scepter to him. And if things get bad enough, you know, you sort of give him emergency powers and then you take them back afterwards. And you, once you've passed the exam or once you got through the health crisis or the, once the finances are back and stable, you sort of take the wheel back. It's not like that. Jesus says, what you sign up for, what you're doing when you're coming to me to be Lord and Christ and King, you are denying, you are giving up every ounce of self-sovereignty and autonomy. I will be Lord of all, or I will not be Lord at all. So many commentators have said. Or we come to Jesus for, for wisdom, for, for leadership, for guidance, for truth. And if we will do that, then we must first, before we come, we must understand that we have to deny ourselves as a source of any of that. 
we don't have innate truth, we don't have innate wisdom, we don't have innate uh, 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 brains that can get us through this kingdom of God. You, you just saw what human wisdom does when it's confronted with the cross. It rebukes it as satanic, which is itself a satanic act. If you're going to, to be saved of sin, if you're going to come to Jesus to have him rule over your life, then one of the deals, one of the parts of that is that you have to give up yourself. Deny that in and of yourself there is any truth that, that comes from you that can add to God's word, that can condition God's word, that can change God's advice and, and in fact give you back that, that, that wisdom. No, Jesus, if you will come to him, he demands that you understand. It's, it's sort of on the entry contract. I am foolish. I will lead myself to hell and think I'm going the right way the whole time. Man decides to go one way and the, the proverb tells us, but in the end that way is death. When Jesus calls us to himself and he does call us, he conditions it warning us that if you come, then everything I give to you, you must deny yourself to be a source of salvation, sovereignty, and wisdom. He does not request an honorable mention on your epitaph. He doesn't want a footnote on your biography. He doesn't want an advisor's role in your kingdom. He doesn't want to be a gold-level sponsor contributor to your treasury of merit. He desires it all because he is worthy of it all. He is all or he is nothing. You are entering his kingdom. He is not paying homage to ours. If anyone will come, let them deny themselves. And secondly, he says, take up his cross. In Jesus' day, under the rule of the Romans, many people will know this, they would, only the worst of the criminals and only those who are non-citizens, only really the, those who have made themselves the scum of the earth through some kind of treacherous, treasonous act of crime, they would be crucified. The Romans had just perfected this act of death. Also, so perfect about it for those who are, you know, that way inclined, is that it extends the death process over the longest period possible while, while holding somebody right on the edge of death, desiring it but not being able to take it. The most excruciating pain without destroying their life yet. Part of that, would people would be whipped, they would be scourged, they would be damaged bodily and then given this, this large crossbeam of wood placed upon their shoulders, tied there if it needs to be, and they would be made to walk themselves to their point of death. So that as they get there, they, they put this person against the pole, they, they nail the crossbar to the pole and create there a cross for crucifixion. And Jesus is saying, if you will come after me, I'm already assuming that you've been condemned. I'm already assuming that the people around us, the, the powers of this world, have cast you out, condemned you to death, and given to you the, the very tool of your own crucifixion. And now you're going you're gonna to walk with me down the Via Dolorosa, the road to the cross. That is the Christian life. Regeneration occurs in Pilate's condemnation room. Glorification is when we die and are raised to Jesus. <coughs> But throughout the whole of the Christian life, there is dying and rising. Daily, Paul said, daily I die for you, Corinthian church. Because he was so, so confident in the resurrection power of Jesus. So that there is a sense in which every day we get up and drive those nails back into the crossbeam. To remind ourselves that our, our old man is dead. 
My old aspirations are dead. My old desires, which held me so fast bound to the things of this world, are dead. My own, my own sovereignty, all of my rights that, that I demanded glory for are dead. Right? When, picture. Picture somebody walking with that cross going up the hill to be crucified. Do you think there's ever somebody who turns to the other man walking with his cross and thinks, ah, I've got to put the bins out. Or they're, they're arguing, maybe a husband and a wife, like, like Peter and his wife would eventually, be killed together. And as they're walking up that, that road, do you think they're arguing about which color they wanted to paint the kitchen tiles? I really wanted that blue. You went with the red. And we'll talk about it later. Do you think they're wondering about their investments that they've made and, 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 and being annoyed by, by that they didn't sell soon enough? They should have bought the other stock price. Now, there's nothing sinful with those things that I'm talking about, the, the, the painting, the stocks, and whatnot. But I'm saying if you're on your road to death, there's certain things that completely pass out of importance. One of those things for the Christian is, is your, your own glory, your own empire. When the devil tempts you to come back and rebuild your empire, to, to come back and live in, in your glorious life where you rule and you get the, the fame, you, you, you look back over your shoulder and you look at that old kingdom of yours. It's a pile of rubble splattered with your blood from when you came to Jesus. It's, it's dead. It's destroyed. What Satan is tempting you back to is to go and sit on a pile of rubble. You simply say, I, I don't care about that kingdom anymore. Or when somebody insults you, maybe it's persecution, maybe it's just somebody being rude to you. You, you, don't, you don't revile back as if that pile of rubble has any glory in it that needs defending. You're not defensive over your own worth and your own glory. You might even join in. Like, like Spurgeon used to say, when, when he would get, get uh, uh, attacks in the newspaper or from his, from his uh, 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 spiritual uh, detractors, he, he would simply say, I'm worse than you know. I've got more to add to the list. Thanks for letting everyone know, let, lest they have a, a false picture of the megachurch pastor. Thank you. For those who are following Jesus are in a process of death, life, death, life, death, life, but life always comes after the death. And as we walk, we have given up all self-sovereignty, all of our self-glory. It is all dead behind us. We are walking. We have one thing in mind, Jesus and his kingdom. Thirdly, Jesus says, you must deny yourself, turn away from yourself as a source of anything that you ultimately need for salvation. Take up your cross. Don't, don't pick up a throne. God will give you that. Take up your cross in readiness to suffer every day for Jesus. And then thirdly, follow him. If you'll come after me, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is, you trust me. I'm a rabbi. This was a, this is a rabbinical phrase that they would say to p uh, potential students. So look at them. They would say, you, follow me. You don't apply for schools like you do now. You don't apply for an interview into a university. You hope that the rabbi comes to you and says, follow me. I'll walk around. I'll teach you. I'll, I'll tell you what to write down. I'll, I'll give you the teachings. And, and so here's Jesus saying to his crowd, you must stand up. You must follow after me. Where I go, you must come. What I say, you must obey. What I am, you must strive to become. 
Jesus is demanding obedience. He's commanding that we consider Jesus' example and live like him. There is no condition. There is no red tape on, on our entering into Jesus. There is no, there is no I, I like that. And like Peter, I'm cool with those miracles. I love the talk of glory. I'm really looking forward to the throne. And I like all this talk about angels that escort us back to judge our enemies. Tick, tick, tick. One condition, I refuse to go to the cross. I refuse to go or follow or live in a way that is identified with suffering. There's no condition on following Jesus. He says, follow me, and then he leads us to the end. And those words of Isaiah might even come to our mind as we worry, we look forwards and we see a path overrun with water. And he says, do not fear the water. It will not overcome you, though it will be washing against you, though it will be buffeting you, it will not overflow. I will be with you, says the Lord God of hosts. And though the the way is burned with fire and, and buffeted on every side with flames, you will not be destroyed, but like gold, you will pass through the fire and be refined. And on the other side of every trial, of every persecution, of every difficulty, of every test, we look and we see Jesus as one standing in the fire, beyond the fire, saying, come. Follow me. I've been through it. I am with you. It will not destroy you. Jesus says, follow me. This is the nature of following Jesus. The whole of the Christian life, like we said before, is a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life. And so we have to start asking ourselves how we think about our Christian life today. How in reality we would stand here and we, again, it's fun to just mock and judge Peter. We have to start picturing ourselves there on the hillside with Jesus as he's begun his walk towards Jerusalem, as he's going to walk in there where he has told them time and time again, I'm going to die, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going in there to die, will you come with me? We have to ask ourselves, does my life, My spiritual following of Jesus, does it look like one who has considered everything about myself, everything about what this world has to offer? Have I considered it all as loss? Have you reckoned, friend, truly in your heart that your own lordship and sovereignty, your own authority, your own moral goodness before God, all of this is useless before Jesus? Compared to Jesus, but before God's throne, it is all useless. Have you really and truly reckoned that in your heart of hearts? And have you, have you rejoiced to cast it all down, throw it to the side and, and walk in? I was, I was thinking this week of, 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 a, of a time when we were kids and we had gone overseas and there was a sort of country where you could get gadgets and really cool things and we had bought lighters, you know, jet lighters. And it was awesome because these jet lighters were in the shape of pistol replicas. So my brother had packed into his suitcase a Desert Eagle revolver, made of metal, right in underneath his socks. And I had packed this, this pistol, this 9mm that I had chucked into my suitcase. And we were hoping to get them back, and we hadn't told mum about them because she wouldn't let us, right? We we're coming up to the, to the security gates, and, and dad checks with us, and we're standing there at the sign that says, do you have any, any guns? And we look at each other and say, no, not, not technically. 
How much are we going to gain by coming back to Australia with these, showing us, showing our friends? And it goes through all these things. Do you have deadly weapons? Do you have any of these? And we're like, no, Dad. No, we don't have any. And the last one, you laugh at what really got us. Did you have any lighters? Ah, technically, yes. That's what stopped us bringing pistols through security is that they were technically lighters. That, that, that annoyed me. Yeah, oh, Dad, we do remember. We have those lighters. These what lighters. Remember the guns? Shh, for example. I told you to throw those out back in Tokyo. Like, yeah, we know. We wanted to bring them back. Well, here we are. With all that would otherwise gain us, everything that we wanted to, to come through the gates into Australia with, we, we so much wanted to hold these, but when you realize you're coming up to the security gates and the cost of keeping them is that very cold concrete room back there and 12 Japanese men with assault rifles, when that's the cost, that thing which was once gain is just hurled into the bin. We've put them in the bin at an airport. That doesn't sound safe. <laughs> Everything that is once gained to us becomes absolutely loss, an absolute deficit on the account when we, when we look at what is coming. Has that been your life? I know that some of us have been blessed with, with wealth, maybe inheritance, maybe money-mindedness, maybe, maybe income. Maybe some of us have, have none of that, but, but we have influence and we have some, some fame and popularity and, and others of us just have otherworldly skills and talent and charisma and all of that. We can say, thank you, Lord, for your blessings. But if he calls you on a path where that will have to be stripped from you, I think of C.T. Studd, the, the great famous English cricketsman who, who won the, the Ashes and won the most historical games, and he was a millionaire, and he had all of his future set before him. He became a missionary to the dusty plains of India. Gave it all up. That man getting spat on, sworn at, starving, skinny, could have purchased himself prime real estate in London. But he'd given it all up. Does that characterize our lives? Are we willing in our following of Jesus to picture our life like that? Does your Christianity carry a cost? Does it demand dying to yourself? Does it demand death to your worldly goals? Have you, have you butchered? Have you crucified? Have you scourged those worldly desires that are within you, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that you might follow Jesus where he leads? J.C. Ryle Commentating on this text, he said, A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. Let's take the inverse. A religion that costs everything has infinite worth. That is the religion that Christ calls us to. Like Paul to say, I die every day. This cross that we bear is a short walk. It is only a few years, maybe a few decades or, 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 or scores of years at the most, and then eternity. Eternity with not another cross to bear, another thorn to be pushed into our brow, another insult to carry. Eternity after death. This cross is just a little while. What ways have you been avoiding the cost, avoiding persecution, doing all that you can to escape those conversations at work, around the family, to avoid insult, to avoid being persecuted or afflicted? What ways do you pray more desperately than for the winning of souls, more desperately than for the building of the church, more desperately than for missionaries in other countries? You pray, you beg that God would keep you from affliction. 
God, give your family health and wealth and protection and, and you beg and you lose sleep and you have tears as you cry out to God for those things. But the things for the building of the kingdom, the saving of others' souls and your own holiness goes unprayed for. Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross and followed Jesus? For verse 35 tells us, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. That is to say that whoever, whoever refuses to deny themselves, whoever hears what Jesus said and says, I will not pick up a cross, I will not deny all that I am, all that I can do, all of my potential, I will not sacrifice that for the kingdom. That person has lost his life because he has gained it. Like maybe a, a dumb teenager would, would hold on to those pistols, chuck them in his pocket, I, I want to take this back home. Who would refuse to let go, will go through the judgment and lose everything. He who would hold on to his life and keep it back from Jesus will in fact lose their life. But those who would give it all for Jesus, hand it over to Jesus, make him their Lord, their Savior, take up their cross and live as he did to those people Jesus promises, you gain your life back. He encourages them, therefore, secondly, in the motivation of following him. He motivates them in verse 37 with the infinite value of a soul. Verse 37. For what can a man, sorry, verse, verse 36 and verse 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What, what can a man give in return for his soul? The disciples were absolutely shocked to hear that the Messiah's kingdom would, would involve so much loss, so much hardship, so much affliction, so much persecution, so much humility, as opposed to the pomp and the pride and the primacy. Unless they, they think wrongly, as, as if to think, that all of this affliction, all of this loss, all of this suffering, all of this cross mentality, what Jesus is calling them to is a net loss. The devil genuinely has greater pleasure and greater pleasures and joys at his right hand than God does, lest they think that way. The world genuinely has, has pleasures to offer that God cannot think up, lest they think that way. God really is trying to keep from you the best that you can be, the devil told Adam and Eve, that on the other side of obedience, if you throw it to the side, there is true power, might, life, knowledge, experience, lest they think that way. Jesus tells them that all of the loss I'm calling you to secures for you something that is lost if you gain all of the world. If, if you could sit at the highest seat of authority, if you could be at the top of Forbes list or at the, the top of the Wall Street Journal, if you could be the top richest man, woman in the world for, for centuries, if you could somehow extend your life, whatever it would look like, you gain everything. You've gained nothing. For this short life that you live, if it is at the cost of your soul, just do the balance. Jesus calls them to, to economic frugalness right now. Just, just rack up the table, put your pros and your cons, your assets and your deficits right alongside each other. And all that you can gain in this world, if it comes under the banner of denying Jesus, then the cost is your soul. And there is no amount of riches experiences, traveling, joys, money, friends, sex, power. There's no amount that you can put in the other column that will out 
weigh your soul. But on the, on the converse, we can say that no matter what in that column you lose, no matter how much you've suffered a loss of, no matter how much of your own goodness, your own pride, your friends, your family, maybe income, maybe career, maybe a place to live, maybe you have to flee a certain country, maybe whatever it is, whatever you have to lose, even if it's your own head from your shoulders, if you gain your soul, you've gained a net profit. For there is nothing you can gain that can outweigh your soul, and therefore the encouragement is there's nothing you can lose that will ever truly bring you to a place of regret if you give it all for Jesus. There is no true loss in following Jesus. He's calling us to gain. He's calling us to victory. He's calling us to the right hand of the Father who has eternal pleasures. Joy is at his right hand forevermore. Take up his cross. Deny himself. Follow me for the soul is worthy. You don't lose. When you come to Jesus, you don't lose eternal and infinite things. You only lose the dust of this earth. When you lose the glitter and the gold, it's, it's made of things. All that you can gain in this world will all return to the dust. Even your body, everything will return to the dust. Nothing will go beyond the grave with you to the judgment of Jesus. The buildings we sit in today, the Bibles that we've had leather bound and name imprinted, the clothes on our back, the things that we love most in this world, that you show your friends when they come over, take them to the little shelf where you've got your, your antique something, take them to the garage where you show that shining V8 something or other. Whatever you would boast of in this life, even good things, the church that we worship in, the name of this church, the name of every soul sitting here today, we will one day be just a blip on history if we're remembered at all. But your soul your soul will never pass away. And if for Jesus' sake and the Gospels, you've, you've lost all that which will never be remembered, then you can sing in amazing grace that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've not a single day less to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But if we hold on to those things of earth, then into the grave we go, and into hell we are cast. And 10,000 years upon 10,000 years will roll and roll, and there will be not a day less to go through. And eternity is stretched out in suffering and agony because we would not receive Jesus as the forgiveness of sins. The soul, if it is lost, carries the greatest cost. So hold on to it, bring it to Jesus, and have him cleanse it of sin. Christian, do you act as if something is more important than your soul? I speak to heads of families at the moment who, who lead their families and have other things on the schedule like academic excellence goals and like sporting achievements and like maybe relationships you, you hope will flourish and like future careers and all of those things. But fathers, do you act? Does your, does your household behave? Does the schedule of your month look like what you treasure most of all? The conversations you have inside your home, the, the atmosphere that you work out, does that look like what you treasure most of all as the highest value under your care? 
is the value of the soul that Jesus has given you for a short time? Where is their relationship with Jesus? Do they know the word? Do they know how to fight sin? Do they, do they know Jesus as Lord and Savior and dear friend? Every one of us has to ask in our, in our life. Maybe, maybe we're in a, a marriage and that takes a lot of attention and it, and it might even be distraction for you at some times. Maybe, maybe you're studying, maybe you're working and the career burdens you. Friends, do you live? Does it look like the thing that you treasure the most, the thing you carve out time for is the soul that God has given you, the means of grace that God has given to us to grow that soul. That is primary. Some people live as if they say, and of course they say that Jesus is number one. He's, he's all that I aim for. I'll sing the song. I signed a card. You know, that, that, that's how I, I got a tattoo. It says it, Jesus, Soli Deo Gloria. It's right there. I'm super reformed. I'm, I, it, he's all him, but, but, but the early mornings are easily sacrificed. I'll, I'll get up early because there's a promotion involved. I'll sacrifice sleep. I'll, I'll work harder because there's, a, there's more money to be made at the earlier shift on the, on the Sunday. You know those penalty rates on Sundays? You haven't heard of that, have you? I'm, I'm, I'm risking telling you right now. You can make more money at, at work on Sundays. And people would, while claiming that Jesus is Lord of all, will, 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 will never sacrifice sleep in the morning to read his word. Get up early to get there at church. 9.30 is pretty early. But for a promotion, for work, for more money, my, the, the math does itself. Do we live like the most valuable thing that we have is the soul that God has given us? Calvin would say when we were, when we were to be faced with persecution, this reality has to be ringing through our ears. When persecution or temptation to, to leave the faith, go back to the way you love to live. Don't, 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 don't sacrifice. Don't keep, on, don't keep on living this life of costly holiness. Come back to the pleasures you once lived in. Calvin would have us remember. Run through our minds, he said, this phrase, what can I profit if I lose my soul? Stand firm on that. Hold that promise in your mind, in your soul, in your heart. Repeat it daily to yourself. What can I gain if I lose my soul? There is nothing that outweighs that outvalues the soul. It must be protected. It must be given to Jesus. It must be persevered at all costs. And thirdly, we see the reward of following him. The nature of following him is the cross. The motivation of following him is the value of the soul. But the reward of following him is acceptance for eternity by the Son of God. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. It's giving a hint to the disciples that this is not going to be the glory, pomp, kingdom bringing, throne making generation they thought they were going to be in Israel. This will be the generation that Jesus curses and that, that many covenantal woes come down on. That, that in fact their temple is going to be destroyed Many, this is, a, this is a cursed generation to be a part of. Jesus says, this sinful and adulterous generation, if you are of me ashamed and of my words ashamed right now, of you will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with all the angels. To be ashamed of Jesus and his words is to, be, is to really mock his appraisal. He's the broker who came back the spiritual broker, and said, I, I, I recommend this investment. Uh, Jesus 
loss of all things equals soul gained. I, I recommend this. And we look at him and ashamed of that advice, we refuse to deny ourselves, hand over keys to our life and, and bend our knee to his lordship for salvation. We don't do that. We mock that. We're ashamed of such an investment. Now, we will hold on to what we have. Or like Judas, we'll put one foot into that boat and we'll just ride it out a while. We'll see what benefits it brings. We'll see what, we'll see what uh, additions it brings to the life. And if it doesn't work out, well, we'll simply pull out of the investment. Jesus says that shame of either a partial investment or a refusal to invest in this will earn for yourself utter, eternal, ultimate, public shame before me, the Son of Man. That glorious picture of the Old Testament who, who comes and receives the kingdoms over all kingdoms, who receives a throne over all thrones, that Son of Man judges the nations judges every soul upon death. And when he comes back riding on the clouds with glory and the angels are in his throne, uh, in his throng, when he comes back, he will put you to shame. He'll be ashamed of you as, as you sort of cry back out and go, Jesus, um, I know what you said and I know what I didn't do and I know that I was ashamed of you, but, but you're a forgiving guy. You will share the throne. You will share the glory. And you must, you must receive me. Please, don't, don't cast me into hellfire. Of that soul, Jesus will be ashamed. That before his father, as his father would look at him and say, this, this man with you, this worker of iniquity, this desirer of glory who did not even consider eternity compared to his little life, he was so proud he thought he could, he could work God's glory into this short span of life and, and God could not do better than that. That one, is he with you, son? And Jesus will back out, blushing. He is not with me. He must be taken away. He must be judged. I do not stand with him for he did not stand with me. But to every single one of us, We've heard Jesus' call to sacrifice and discipleship and cross-bearing and insult and persecution. Every one of us who hears that and walks with Jesus down the road to the cross, having taken on suffering ourselves and walk with him to our death, every one of us who does that, Jesus will not be ashamed. Didn't we hear in Romans, all who call on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. If you have come to Christ with your sin and given it over, if you've realized that all you have in life is sin, iniquity, self-destruction, foolishness, if you bring all of that to Jesus, lay it down at the foot of his cross, and you yourself take on the yoke of discipleship, to you Jesus will give the welcome, the acceptance, the glorious enthronement into his kingdom because you have lost all and therefore gained what God would see fit to bless you with in his son. I think if you're listening to him this day, if we can picture ourselves on this mountainside, when he said verse 38, I think the disciples would have got a jolt if they were listening. He was just talking about being rejected, being destroyed, being killed, being buried. And then he said in verse 38, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels... Are you accursed? Are you buried? Are you crucified? Are you dead? Or are you coming in glory with angels? 
Of course, what, what goes unsaid here but will be extrapolated in the New Testament is that Jesus, in his resurrection and his ascension, will receive the glory from the Father, will receive all authority on heaven and on earth, will receive the throne, receive the kingdom, set up the kingdom here on earth. Jesus will receive that glory, and one day he will come back. That all those who mocked him now, who are ashamed of him now, who, who are embarrassed by the thought of following him at self-cost, those people will see him in all glory, in all honor, in all might, in all blessing and honor. And they will shake in fear. But those who have made him their savior, John says, love his appearing. Love his appearing. That will be a day of great blessing. The life that Jesus calls us to is the life of the gospel where we die and expect life at the Father's hand. The task is very simple. As he says here, you be ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you then. The, the question, the answer, the task is very, very simple. Just choose which rejection you would rather. You can live this life in utter rejection of the world and shame and persecution, and I know it's costly. You can live in that rejection, but receive the acceptance of Jesus. Or you can live now in acceptance of mankind and receive the rejection of Jesus. So, so just which one would you rather? The rejection of Jesus in glory or the rejection of mankind now? The task, the answer, the, the question, the thought to anyone thinking is simple. Ryle said, it is better a thousand times to be mocked now and accepted then than accepted now and rejected then. But lest any of us would hear all of this call today and think that what Jesus is doing is setting up some, some high ladder to attain because I know, I know that none of us have denied ourselves enough. None of us have taken up our cross in a faithful, daily way that we should have. None of us have followed him like we should have followed him. And, and lest anyone think today as we hear the words of Jesus, well, I want entry into the kingdom. I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. What I ought to do now is enter into this boot camp. I'm going to start trying to deny myself more. I'm going to start trying to, to take up my cross even better. I'll, I'll run to the persecution. That, that's what I'll do. I'll be like those first century Christians that are actually signing up to die in the Colosseum. That happened. Did you know that? I'm going to, I'm going to do so much following of Jesus, I'll put others to shame. And what is that? except for trusting again in ourselves for the salvation that only Jesus offers. What the, the question that Peter sort of implicitly put forward today was not, how do we enter the kingdom? The question that was being put forward is, what is the character of the kingdom? What Jesus has been telling us today is, is what he will do with us once we are in the kingdom. The, the kind of life we have to be aware is coming and willingly sign up for. He is not today giving conditions for entry into salvation. Everything you've heard today is, is, a, is a New Testament law, and it is good and it is beautiful, and it is true that this is the life we will live, death to self, denial of self, and following Jesus. But do not think that Jesus demands that you do all of that in and of your own strength. If we can just think back a couple of verses, it took God by his Holy Spirit 
for Peter to even know that Jesus was the Christ. It therefore took much more, the Holy Spirit, to convince Peter that Jesus would die as the Christ. And, and therefore, even more of the Holy Spirit to realize that we must live a life of dying after Christ. How much more, therefore, do we need the Holy Spirit sent from Jesus on high for us to undertake this life? I'm not calling you to a large, long list of suffering at the end of which you might grab that dangling carrot which is eternal life. The promise of the gospel is immediate justification, immediate salvation, total forgiveness of all past, present, future sins. It is for you today. What we have described today, the, the way to the cross is after your rebirth, is after coming unified to Jesus. But today, the promise of the gospel is believe in this Jesus who rules for you, who reigns for you, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you, that your sins might be forgiven by God. Do that and, and trust his Holy Spirit, which he sends from heaven, will lead you down that life. Have faith today in who Jesus is, what he has done and what he promises, and you will be saved. Christian, that is the basis of your salvation. That is what puts the, the wind in your sails to carry on this life of self-dying. Not your own power. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord Jesus, it is our honor and our, our blessing to come to the end of ourselves. There is nothing more human than to esteem ourselves as ultimate. Lord, there is no, therefore, more countercultural, counterhuman, unnatural call than for you to call us to the death of ourselves, to the end of ourselves, to the shame of ourselves, to the loss of ourselves. But God, that is the call. I pray that as that humanly impossible call comes, that we would hear it, and that we who have been born again by your Spirit would again rejoice to be reminded of the type of life we've been called to live we would again be, be struck and convicted with your word's power as it shows us how, how far we, sh we fall short of this standard. How frequently we attempted to walk away from the king, walk back to the, to the rubble, try and build a little sandcastle for ourselves to live in. God, continue. As Paul would say in Galatians, crucify the world to us and crucify us to the world. Daily, Lord. Let us die to our sin because you have died for our sin. And Lord, for all of those who are not in you, who are yet this day ashamed of your words and your gospel, who are still today losing their soul to gain the world, would you give to them the new heart that would release everything, let go of it all and simply be born again, claiming to, holding fast to Jesus Christ, being saved by his blood, born again by his spirit. We pray this, Lord, in the power of his spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.